This morning, I'll begin a five-part sermon series covering Genesis chapter 37 through 50. It is the life of Joseph. The life of Joseph. Uh, This has been described as a novella, something like a short novel or a long short story. It's uh, quite interesting if we're just going through the book of Genesis, you come to chapter 37 and an extended time is spent looking at one of Abraham's great-grandsons, Joseph. It's a hero story. But as we'll see, Joseph doesn't pursue being the hero. He is chosen by God for the role and almost in such a way that God makes sure that Joseph ends up the hero of the story. Well, if you're paying attention, that that sounds like a story about providence. It's exactly what it is. John Calvin says, this story is a most beautiful example of divine providence. The God of the Bible accomplishes his eternal purpose through providence. Always has, always will. Now, what is providence? Let me just give you a little reminder, refresher, or maybe introduce the subject to you. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 11, the answer explains providence is this. God's work of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. The Bible teaches that the God who made all things sustains that creation. But he is still at work governing the entirety of creation. It's providence. And in this story of providence, Calvin points out two things. We learn that the Lord performs his work through wonderful and unusual ways. There's a lot of mystery to God's providence. There's a sense in which we can say that God is unpredictable. Now listen carefully to what I'm saying. God is is unpredictable. That He works in unusual ways. And what I mean by unpredictable, quite often it's different than the ways we would plan for Him to work in our lives. So we could say something at like the micro level, at the personal level, at times God seems unpredictable. But we must qualify that and immediately say that he is totally predictable. Because at the macro level, at the big picture, he has revealed his intention for all of humanity. He has told us in his word what he will do and where he is governing and steering all of human history towards and what it will culminate in. He's given promises. He's given commands. He's predictable. Even when we don't understand what he's doing in our lives as individuals. And so here's one of the ways that he is predictable. Calvin points out that in this 
beautiful story of providence. God brings about the salvation of his church, not through magnificent splendor, but through death and the grave. There's a lot of hard providences in the story of Joseph. Today we'll look at the entirety of chapter 37. Let me give you just an, a, a literary outline of kind of maybe that help you follow because we're going to read this entire chapter. So in verses 2 through 11, there's a setting. The setting is we're being introduced to Jacob's house. So you can imagine we're in Jacob's house in verses 2 through 11. And then we're taken out to some fields, to Shechem and then to Dotham in verses 12 through 30. And then the story returns back to Jacob's house in verses 31 through 35. Now kids, this is a long reading of Scripture. I would encourage you, as you're listening, um, some of you already know the story of Joseph. Um, I want you to pay attention to the details that Moses gives us here in chapter 37. And so especially this morning, it would be helpful if you pay attention to the way that Joseph's ten brothers are described because they're described over and over. So would you take note of that and think on that as I read God's word for us? But before we do that, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this is your word and we come to it as desperate, needy, hungry people. So would you, through Genesis chapter 37, feed us on the bread of life, your son, that we might receive him, grow in our faith in him, and grow in our living for his glory and the advance of his kingdom. Do a mighty work in us. Through your word we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of God from Genesis chapter 37, beginning in verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any, of, any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? 
And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers. He said, Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now. Let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then they will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into the pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. Fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus, his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Call this sermon the wicked brothers, because so much of the narrative is about the brother's sin, isn't it? 
Now, what is true today was true back then. Satan wants to destroy the family. And we see him at work here in God's chosen family. Now, Satan goes after the family because he always goes after God's good gifts. The family is meant to be a safe haven for children, a place where righteousness is learned, a place where evangelism takes place and disciples are made and then sent forth as ambassadors for the kingdom. So we understand why Satan will put his crosshairs on the family and especially families that belong to God. Now, if we're not careful, we recognize all the external threats to the family and we see Satan's influence in the world around us. And we must be aware of that. We must be on guard against it. But we must not forget that he doesn't just work from without, but because we are fallen and because of sin, he also has a way into families. So as many walls and dividers that we could put up to keep the world out, there remains sin within. And here we see sin fracturing and shattering God's chosen family. And they are on the brink of ruin. They are deeply flawed. Now, in the story of Joseph, God in his providence delivers Jacob's family from famine. But that's not the whole story. We are given this brutally honest description of God's chosen family because in the story of Joseph, God in his providence delivers Jacob's family from themselves. And he uses providence to transform their character. In the story, there is the threat of sin from without, but the bigger threat is the sin from within. And God exposes corrects and transforms Jacob and his sons. It's a beautiful example of God's providence. It's a beautiful example of character transformation through providence. Now, character transformation, there's another way of speaking of character transformation. Sanctification. Sanctification is how God makes his people holy. It is the work of God's grace. Recreating and renewing his people into what he intended them to be. Those who are his image bearers in holiness and righteousness. And so we see God through providence sanctifying Jacob, Joseph, and his brothers. So that's our our outline. In Jacob, we see the slowness of sanctification. The slowness of sanctification. In Joseph, we see the role of suffering in sanctification. And in the brothers, at least in this chapter, we see the sad downward spiral of sin. The sad downward spiral of sin. We begin with the dad, the slowness of sanctification. 
Now, I'll remind you of the story of Jacob, Abraham's grandson. The Lord has done tremendous work in his life up to this point in the book of Genesis. Jacob has encountered the Lord in a new way, and it has made a big difference. But what we see here in this chapter is that he has not arrived. He still has a long way to go. Look back at verse 3 with me. There in verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. Here Moses goes back and forth between identifying the dad as Jacob and also Israel. Jacob his name means supplanter, heel catcher, and it came to describe his character as a deceiver. And then, remember, he encounters God, and he wrestles with God. And the Lord humbles him and touches his hip and maims him and gives him a new name. One who, in faith, held on to God and wrestled with God until God would bless him. It's the name Israel. It's his new name. And you could make too much out of the, the swapping between Israel and Jacob in Scripture, but here I think it is quite intentional to say that here's the man who the Lord is at work, who's done so much in his life. Remember, Israel is a fraternal twin. He has a brother named Esau, and his brother hated him, despised him. Why did his brother hate him and despise him? Because Jacob tricked him out of his birthright and the blessing for the firstborn. They were fraternal twins, Esau being the one who came out first. And what was behind Esau's hatred of Israel? Well, their parents, Isaac and Rebekah, played favorites. And it was very clear in the home, a family of four, that they were favorites. Isaac loved Esau. He was the dude's dude. He was the man's man. He was the hunter. And then Jacob had different sensibilities, and he was the one in the home quite often. Apparently, he was a pretty good cook. And he was a favorite of Rebecca. And this favoritism was destroying the family. And it led to Rebecca convincing Jacob, now Israel, to deceive his father. Do you remember how he did it? He, Esau was a hairier man than he was. And so he, he killed the goat. He made a stew. He claimed that it was wild game. And then he put the hair the skin of the goat on him and he went in and told his father who was losing his eyesight that he was his brother and received the blessing. And it nearly led to Esau murdering his brother. And what do we see here happening again? We see favoritism tearing the family apart. We see it leading to great destruction Israel 
God is at work in your life. But did you forget all that he's trying to undo? Do you remember how the sin of favoritism just nearly destroyed your family? And now you're doing it again. He's slow in sanctification. He doesn't recognize the depth of sin and corruption in his life. And he doesn't realize how it's impacting his sons. And so it opens with, in chapter 37, he's showing favoritism to one son, and then it ends with ten sons deceiving him to close the chapter. They're taking on the sin of their father and mimicking his deception. So much so, Moses makes sure that that we understand that when they, they ripped the coat of many colors, they dipped it in goat's blood. And a goat was part of the deception. There's a warning here for all parents. There's a warning here for heads of households. But there's a warning for every person listening here. Learn from Jacob. Sin goes deep. And your full transformation and sanctification is a lifelong project. It does not end until you see your Savior's face. That's not meant to discourage or to encourage. It's meant to be a dose of reality. Of the pilgrimage that is before you. And that you would not take light sin. And that you would not think too highly of the progress that you've made. We give gratitude and praise to God for what he has done in our lives every day. But we must be careful that we don't allow pride to slip in and we remain instead in a humble place, always aware of our continuing need of grace. David in Psalm 19 puts this in a very helpful way. David is a man who saw sin destroy families and nearly destroy his own family with his son Absalom in so many ways that sin devastates a family. At the end of Psalm 19, do you remember what he prays? Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. That's a good prayer for all of us every day. Similar to the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation. Presumptuous sins. Hidden sins. Not hidden to God. Hidden to you and I. Ones that we're not aware of. Or maybe we thought we've moved past. And there's more reformation, transformation, conforming to the image of Christ that needs to take place in our life. The slowness of sanctification. We must remember it. But also, here we see in Joseph, the second thing for us, the role of suffering in sanctification. Joseph, in this chapter, is presented as morally superior than his brothers. If we miss that, we miss a big part of what we're supposed to take away from Genesis 37. 
And what we're at stake at losing is that ultimately he's presented as being treated unjustly. He's, he suffers. He genuinely suffers. He does not deserve the treatment he receives from his brothers. So we want to be on guard and not confuse ourselves there. He is more upright than his brothers. But we see here, and we don't want to make too much out of it, but there are hints that he was immature and lacking wisdom. So look back at verse 2. There it says, at the second half of the verse, he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, it's commendable that the young man, 17 years old, takes a stand against his brothers who are doing these evil things. Takes a stand in such a way that he's willing to go back and to inform his father. So, taking the stand for righteousness is commendable. However, it would seem that he maybe skipped a step. Because Scripture does teach us how to deal with the sins of others. It instructs us how to confront, how to rebuke. So in Matthew 18, right, when we see the sin of someone else, we're we're to go to them personally first. And then if they don't listen to us, then we bring someone else. And then if they don't listen to two witnesses, then we bring it to the elders of the church. In Galatians 6, we're told when we see someone in sin, what's our purpose? Well, how should we approach it? Well, the goal is to... Restore them gently. Excommunication is always a last resort. We see that they are restored. And so, he was intending to do something righteous, but maybe he lacked wisdom and biblical wisdom and biblical maturity on how to address the sins of his brothers. And then we see there in verse 5 and following, the telling of the dreams. Now the dreams are very important. And if we track along in Genesis 37 through 50, uh, we'll notice that there's a pattern of two sets of dreams. Joseph gets two dreams, then while he's in prison, there's two dreams, and then Pharaoh has two dreams. It's very intentionally laid out there. So these are very important But for the time being, it would seem that maybe he lacks some discretion, lacks some wisdom, lacks some maturity in the sharing of these dreams. He was right to share them, but it could have just been in the way in which he shared them. He exercised poor judgment. His youth is shown. And what do these dreams communicate to Joseph? Well, his brothers were right. These dreams are or symbols of him ruling over them. In the sheaves bowing down to his sheaf, and then all the sun, moon, and stars bowing down to him. God is is setting apart Joseph among his brothers to be the leader, to be the one in which deliverance would come through. And you know, and that, that could have been part of Jacob's favoritism of Joseph, he recognizes that here's my upright son. Oh, here's the son that after God gave me the new name Israel, he gave me this son from my beloved wife, Rachel. Oh, and, and here's the one, maybe this is the son that 
God's promises to, to my grandfather Abraham of a royal seed will come through. So Jacob gives him the special coat to set him apart. And then God gives the dreams confirming Joseph's election to be the leader of his family. It's important. It's precious to him. I suggest maybe he shared them unwisely, prematurely. And we have to wonder that if God doesn't put Joseph through the ringer that he does, if Joseph does not experience the suffering, how would Joseph have turned out? And we don't want to speculate too much, but maybe Joseph would turn out like the Pharisee in Luke 18 that Jesus tells us about. The one who stands in the temple courts saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. God, I thank you that I'm not like my wicked brothers. God uses suffering in Joseph's life to humble him, to make him gracious. God uses suffering in Joseph's life to mature him, to make him wise. God uses suffering in Joseph's life to draw him closer to himself. I know there is plenty of suffering in this room. Evan did a wonderful job just praying through some of the prayer requests we are aware of. And in suffering, doesn't it feel like, God, you're being unpredictable right now? What are you doing? Well, if you belong to Christ, you won't have all your answers questioned this side of glory, but you can be certain that one of the things that God is doing through your suffering right now it's sanctification. It's ridding you of, of maybe unknown pride. It's showing you your need for constant humility. It's maybe working maturity where you thought you were already mature. It's hard. But God is a good surgeon. And when He cuts, He cuts for a purpose. God will use it for your sanctification. And if you're a child of God, He never, ever, ever wastes the suffering that you go through. Now, we need to look at the sad downward spiral of sin. This is part of the burden of the chapter that we see the progression of sin in Joseph's brothers. And as it relates to sanctification, it reminds us of the necessity that we pursue sanctification in our hearts and lives. That sin will not stay stagnant, it will seek to grow and destroy. So let's just observe, look back at verse 4. Verse 4, what does it say? But when his brothers saw that the father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. And then in verse 8, again, they hated him. Then in verse 11, what does it say of the brothers? Look at the progression. They were jealous of him. Hatred gives way to jealousy, an intense jealousy. 
And then in verses 18 through 20, things escalate, don't they? They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Oh, this is, this is tragic in so many ways. They are conspiring to murder their brother. This is the first time some of this language was used in Genesis chapter 4 in Cain and Abel. And so you're supposed to think, oh no, it's happening again. The brothers are going to kill the brother. But it's more than that. Look at the progression where that they mock him for his dreams. Now, we think of dreams differently than the, they are presented in Genesis. We think of dreams as having a psychological meaning and maybe related to something that, you know, is your, your subconscious is trying to work through or something you just watched on television before going to bed and now it's stuck in your head. They didn't think of dreams the way that we think of dreams today. Dreams in the book of Genesis are always an oracle from God. It's always a decree from God. It's always a message from God. And so while there is no audible message in Joseph's dreams, there are symbols and there are clear communications from God. So now the brothers, they conspire to kill him and they deny God's word. An outright mocking of God's word. This is the progression. And it progresses to moral callousness and just total indifference. They grab him. They throw him into the pit. Reuben convinces them not to take his life immediately. He says, kind of leads them on and says, why don't we just throw him in this pit? The, the, you'll feel better about your conscience at the end of the day if we, if we handle him this way. Reuben had other motives. So they throw him in the pit. They strip him of his clothes. They humiliate him. And then in verse 25, then they just sat down to eat. They just apprehended their brother in the field, stripped him, threw him in a pit, and then, are you hungry? I'm hungry. Let's grab a bite. He's silent here in Genesis 37 for a purpose, but we learn later in the story that he was crying for mercy. And they just ignore him. And they, maybe they, they, they kill the goat and they roast it, and they begin eating that goat. And they said, oh, we use this blood or something. Verses 26 and 28, we see greed, wicked greed, the worst of greed. 20, 20 pieces of silver to sell their own brother. Then, verses 31 to 32, we see lying deceit. Look back there. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. How wicked. They knew it was his robe. And that's the message they send? Look at the hypocrisy in verse 35. All his sons and all his daughters rose up 
to comfort him. How evil of these men. Dad, it's going to be okay. You don't have to mourn what happened to Joseph. It happens. Wild beasts. They caught him in a field. It wasn't your fault, Dad. You were sending him to check on us. It was a good thing you were doing. And Joseph wanted to do it, Dad. And a wild beast got him. It's going to be all right. He refused to be comforted. But the hypocrisy. Wicked. You might say, what about Reuben? Reuben tried to rescue him, right? Well, if we had started sooner in the story of Genesis, we realize that Reuben has been in trouble. Reuben's, he's had his own problems. He, Reuben has slept with one of his dad's wives, Genesis 35. The firstborn, the oldest, he's trying to figure out, there's got to be some way I can get back into my father's favor. And here, here's an opportunity. My brothers want to kill Joseph. I'll, if I rescue him and return him to my father, then we'll be back on good terms. And then when Reuben comes back and Joseph is heading towards Egypt, what does Reuben lament? The boy is gone, and where shall I go? He's not concerned about Joseph. He's concerned about himself. This is where unchecked sin leads. They embrace the hatred and they give it permission to destroy. Verse 4. There's something very helpful that is in the description of the brothers. At the end of verse 4 it says, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Peacefully. This word peace. It's the Hebrew word shalom. It's a word of, of blessing that Abraham's descendants were to give to one another. Shalom. I desire your good, your well-being, your wholeness, your completeness. At some point, not only did they despise the favoritism, but they could not bring themselves to desire any good for Joseph. They could not tell him shalom. And it leads towards active sin and transgression against them. Oh, if you are one of the kids in this room of any age, you got to be careful. Sometimes you might get jealous because a brother or sister gets a, a new present or maybe they get to go do something special with mom or dad. And that's a form of, of, of hatred taking root and it's the progression of of, of hatred and anger towards a brother or a sister, that if you can't be happy for them when something good happens to them, if you can't say peace, shalom, be careful. Guard your heart. And when you see God bless others in little things, 
Be happy for them. Celebrate it. That's true in our families. That's true in all sorts of settings. It's really, it's true in the household of God. We need to be on guard here. We have to remember that this isn't just some distant ancient family. This is our family. We are descendants of Abraham by faith. This is our family. We've seen this touch our own family. And now as those bought by the blood of Christ, we are in the family of God, the church family. So let me ask you today, is there anyone in the household of God that you can't say shalom to, you can't say peace to, that you can't be excited about the Lord's blessings in their life? I would plead with you, make reconciliation before hatred grows and destroys. We're coming to the Lord's table today. It's communion with our Lord and communion with one another. That's you. Come to the table, receive grace, and go extend it as soon as possible. Would you say, you know what? I recognize festering hatred. I wouldn't call it hatred. Well, could you say shalom to them? It's very important. It's not incidental. Paul always introduces his letters pretty much. Nearly all of Paul's letters, right? How? Grace and peace. Grace and peace to you Christians. That's what he leads with. I'm going to tell you some hard things, but we begin with grace and peace. We begin with God's unmerited favor and his shalom. That's the starting place. We constantly remind ourselves that every person in the family of God is in need of God's grace and we want their peace. There's a great danger here for the family of God and our families. We know we're honest. There's sin in our homes, sin in our households. There's a temptation to pretend like there's not. We all want to play the part of shiny, happy people. So when people come in over, we straighten the house really quick. Or we try to present and project something that's not true through social media. And I would ask you to forgive me that if I posted one of the 15 pictures that were photogenic of my family and made it appear that we don't have sin and trouble in the Phipps household, forgive me. There's a real enemy seeking to destroy the biological and spiritual family. And a real danger is that for you and I, that pride would give space for sin to destroy. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. 
Now, we can't leave in a place of despair this morning. That's kind of the intent of the chapter, to push us to the edge. But God is at work. God is at work in his providence in this family. And what is astounding is that he's at work through the sin. God does not commit the sin, endorse the sin, but he is over it. He is governing it somehow. And in his matchless wisdom, he is using the sin of Joseph's brothers. So just a couple things. Think about how God's at work. I told you, dreams were messages from God. God gives Joseph the dreams. So at some point in the pit, Joseph is holding on to this word from the Lord. Before the pit, as he heads out into the field, he shows up in Shechem. These, these are pasturing fields. It's not, it's not heavily trafficked. But there's a man wandering around as he is wandering around. At the same place, same time. The same guy who overheard that his brothers were heading to Dothan. Dothan was 15 miles past Shechem. So think about all the things that head to a line. It's an amazing coincidence. Or it's the God of providence governing all things for his purpose at work. Then, who is it that comes and is at the time Joseph is in the pit, passes by, heading down to Egypt. It's traitors. But isn't it fascinating? It's just not any old traitors. These are cousins, Ishmaelites. They're also descendants of Abraham coming on their way to Egypt, and this is who Joseph is sold to. And Joseph, the one who God identifies as, as the leader, the deliverer, ends up in Egypt. But God told Abraham in Genesis 15 that yes, Canaan is your land, but there will be a time that your descendants will be taken out of the land until the sins of the Amorites have filled up and they're going to be away for 400 years. And now dots are starting to connect. Because the God who seems unpredictable is predictable because he is true to his word and his promises. And in the bigger picture, there is such a pattern here. And it prepares our hearts to come to the table this morning as we are thinking through how sin affects our life and how slow we are in sanctification and how resistant we are to recognizing God at work through our suffering and circumstances. And as how we can recall the way that sin has caused so much damage and hurt in our lives and our lives of our family and our church family God is beginning to lay a pattern for us I told you that we find out later in the story that Joseph was not silent but here in Genesis 37 in the pit he is silent and as he's apprehended and sold he is silent he is the pattern of of the suffering servant the silent suffering servant the one rejected by his kinsmen, his brothers. The one 
sold for 20 pieces of silver. The one who's suffering will lead to their deliverance. There is a pattern for us. It's the pattern of how God will overcome the sins of His people by sending His Son to die in their place. That is our hope this morning. And that is our freedom. That Christ is our righteousness. And that God is not done with us yet. Amen.